So a month from now, here in the United States, we are going to celebrate our Independence Day. The time that we remember our forefathers making this, among other statements, in their declaration. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal with certain they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That pursuit of happiness phrase has always actually caught me off guard at some level trying to understand exactly what it means because it seems that many people have taken on their own thought. So I thought this was helpful to me. This is from a lexical study from dictionary.com. It says this, says, the term happiness comes from the Old Norse term hap, meaning luck or chance. It also, it's also related to the Old English word hapic, meaning equal. While early senses of happiness dating from the 1500s are still very much in use, such as good luck, success, and contentment, Francis Hutchinson, an Irish reverend and philosopher, brought a new, more political interpretation of happiness to English speakers with his 1725 treatise, An Inquiry into the Original of Our Ideas of Beauty and Virtue. His political philosophy, that action is best which accomplishes the greatest happiness for the greatest numbers, and that worse, which in like manner occasions misery. The populator of Hutchison's philosophies helped tie the concepts of civic responsibility and happiness to one another in the minds of the great political thinkers of the 18th century, including the writers of the Declaration of Independence. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy explained this often forgotten sense of happiness in his 2005 lecture at the National Conference on Citizenship. Kennedy notes that while in modern times there is a hedonistic component to the definition of happiness, for the framers of the Declaration of Independence, happiness meant that feeling of self-worth and dignity you acquire by contributing to your community and to its civic life. In the context of the Declaration of Independence, happiness was about an individual's contribution to society rather than pursuits of self-gratification. While, while this sense has largely fallen out of use today, it's important to keep these connotations of happiness in mind while in studying political documents from the 18th century, end quote. So it appears that the founding fathers may have meant more than that each person has the right to chase after his own stuff in the so-called rat race. And if I take that simple, if I take the simple definition from Merriam-Webster on happiness, which is a state of well-being and contentment, synonym joy, then perhaps happiness is actually attainable. It's actually worth pursuing. I mean, who does not want to be well? Who does not want to be content? Who does not want to be joyful? But how do we do that? How do we obtain this happiness? A quick search will give you lots of principles for living a happy life. I want to share one that I found from the Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic staff put this together, and they say, are you tired of waiting around for happiness to find you? Stop waiting and start getting happy with these tips. Do you know how to be happy, or are you waiting for happiness to find you? Despite what the fairy tales depict, happiness doesn't appear by magic. It's not even something that happens to you, it's something you can cultivate. So what are you waiting for? Start discovering to be happy. Only a small percentage, they say, of the variation in people's reports of happiness can be explained by differences in their circumstances. 
It appears that the bulk of what determines happiness is due to personality and, more importantly, thoughts and behaviors that can be changed. So, yes, you can learn how to be happy, or at least happier. Although you may have thought, as many people do, that happiness comes from being born rich or beautiful or living a stress-free life, the reality is that people who have wealth, beauty, or less stress are not happier on average than those who don't enjoy those things. People who are happy seem to intuitively know that their happiness is the sum of their life choices, and their lives are built on the following pillars. Devoting time to family and friends, appreciating what they have, maintaining an optimistic outlook, feeling a sense of purpose, living in the moment. Now, as I read these five principles from the Mayo Clinic, I was struck with actually excitement because this is exactly what we have been talking about through our series through Philippians. And I wouldn't be surprised if a, a few brothers and sisters were a part of that staff that helped put that article together. Because after all, there's, no, there's nothing new under the sun, correct? The truth is the truth. The Apostle Paul addressed these characteristics in his letter to live on being, in being happy. Let me break these five things down for you with a little of the scripture from Philippians. Devoting time to family and friends. The Apostle Paul was devoted to others. Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul was partners with Timothy. They were servants together. They, they were close to one another in, in brotherhood to help share the gospel. Paul loved the people of God, and he sent this letter to the saints to encourage their hearts. He was devoting time and effort while he was in prison to share the truth with them. And in that letter, he's thanking them. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. He cares for them. He's devoted to, to spending time thanking them for their service. And in verse 9 we see, and my, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul devoted time praying for his brothers and sisters. He cared for them, devoting time praying, lifting them up before the Lord in the work of the gospel. Appreciating what they have. We saw this in Paul's letter as well. Philippians 1.5 says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he appreciates the work that the Philippians have been a part of in sharing the work of Christ. Verse 12 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, what, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He appreciates the fact that no matter what has happened, the gospel has been proclaimed. The gospel continues to be proclaimed in that time no matter what is going on in the political landscapes and, and particulars of life, he is appreciative of the fact that the gospel is being advanced. And like we talked about last week in 4.6, says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We are to be thankful, appreciate what we have been given, what is right in front of us. Paul also highlights it, what it means to maintain an optimistic outlook. Chapter 118 says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Similar to what we just talked about, Paul is, is very excited, 
knowing the fact that the gospel is being preached. There is hope in that message. So his outlook, no matter what, is that the gospel is being preached. Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. His main focus is the fact that he's going to obey and do what the Lord asked him to do because the worst that could happen to him is that he's going to die and he's going to be with Jesus. That is an optimistic outlook because he understands from verse 20 in chapter 3, our citizenship is not in, is, is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. An optimistic outlook is important for having a happy life. Paul exhibited that principle in his own life. He also had a sense of purpose, and others he speaks about in the, the letter have a sense of purpose as well. The first challenge that we see, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, from 2.5. This mind among yourself that you should have is of Christ Jesus. What did he think? Jesus was humble and submissive and obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus walked with purpose, the purpose of fulfilling the will of God. Verse 2 or chapter 2, verse 30 says, For we, he, Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus cared so much about serving the Lord and serving his church and taking care of these people that he almost died in the work. That's living with a sense of purpose. That's living with a sense of purpose. And Paul says in Chapter 3, verse 13, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. No matter what, I press on. I have a purpose. I'm going to follow the will of God. I'm going to press on for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul lived with a sense of purpose. If Epaphroditus lived with a sense of purpose. And the fifth principle that the Mayo Clinic lined out that Paul has already addressed is that we should live in the moment. If you want to be happy in the pursuit, you should live in the moment. Rejoice all in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we looked at this last week, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't worry about tomorrow. We're not to worry about tomorrow. We're supposed to trust God that he has it all in his hands and not be anxious and be thankful in our asking for his help. We're going to live for today, for this moment. And then chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. No matter what's going on, I am content. This journey that we have been walking through in Paul's letter to the Philippians is meant to help us live a happy life. To live a life of well-being and contentment. A life full of of joy, a life full of joy no matter the ups and downs and sideways tracks, the life is meant to live together as a redeemed community and that is the opportunity that we have before us. Remember what Pastor Wayne said when he started the series of why we are studying the text in Philippians. He said this as we sometimes think things are so bad that joyful living is impossible. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ten years before this letter was penned, Paul was beaten and illegally arrested in Philippi just for speaking about Jesus. Yet he sang thanksgiving hymns to the Lord and saw a wonderful, enduring church begun. 
Now as he writes to the Philippi, Nero is on the emperor's throne with Paul in prison and Rome awaiting trial. Nonetheless, this letter is full of joy. Most importantly, it teaches us that by God's grace and through the love of the brethren, we can, in any circumstance, enjoy building to last. We can enjoy building to last. See, we're not supposed to go through life without each other. We aren't supposed to go through life grumpy or worried or in vain. That is not how we should live. But we can learn to rejoice always and live in such a way as to help others rejoice also. Now, as Paul closes his letter, he makes a few more statements about how to be happy in the pursuit of life. And I'd like to read the last section completely before we break it down and look at a few more specific principles as he wraps up his letter. Follow along as I read. Philippians 4, 10 through 23 says this. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So the first principle that we see in this section is that we are to be generous. We are to be a generous people. The very first verse is Paul rejoicing because the Philippians have given him a gift. They've given him a gift and he is very thankful for their help in time of need. In verses 14 through 16, he says again, you were kind to share in my trouble and reminds them that they were from the beginning part of the help in spreading the gospel when he had left Macedonia. And in Thessalonica, they sent help again. The Philippians were generous. They worked diligently to help the apostle in the message of sharing the love of Christ. J. Dwight Pentecost made this comment on the Philippians' gift to Paul. It says, Paul refers earlier in this epistle to the fact that the Philippians were going through intense persecution at the hands of godless men so that they themselves were destitute and had nothing they could send to the apostle Paul. Out of that situation, this gift has come. How they were able to scrape together the funds to send to the apostles, Scripture gives no indication other than what is recorded in Corinthians, that they gave themselves to the Lord 
and the Lord made it possible for them to give when there was no human explanation for that possibility. See, we are to be generous like the church in Philippi, to scrape together, to sacrifice, to figure out how to help others in need and how to help make sure that the gospel of grace is proclaimed. And it is a pleasure as a staff member to get to watch you guys do this well. Many of you have sacrificed and given to many, many projects and things that we do, one like the Baby Bottles for Life Talk. You're collecting money to give so that we can help these, these young ladies and, and young men figure out how to, how to stay in the battle with an unplanned pregnancy. Helping us provide for ways to help others share the gospel. Many of you have given to missions, and even this year, mission trips, there's one coming up in Costa Rica in July. Many of you have given financially to help us get the gospel spread across the world. And I would say, well done. Thank you. Thank you for being generous in all those things as well as the many others that we talk about and, and, and do together. But the question is, is there room for growth? Is there any room for each of us to grow in being generous? If you stop and evaluate how generous you are, how are you doing? Are you always looking for ways to give to someone else in the expanse of the message of God's grace and love? So this is an area that the Lord has been working on me over the years, and I've been blessed to know that I can be changed too, and he's teaching me what that means to be better. But man, as I've looked at this again, I have a lot of work to do. There's ways that I can be more generous. How about you? Like the Philippians, I want to be ready to help others in need and share the love of Christ, not just with my time, but with the funds that the Lord has given. To be happy in the pursuit, we must be generous. If we're going to enjoy life, we must be generous people. The Philippians were generous to Paul, and this gave him an opportunity to also highlight the importance of what it means to be content. For we need to be content. Verse 11 and 13 says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then in 17 through 18, he mentions that he's not seeking the gift itself, for he is okay without it, but he is grateful for the gift and he's thankful that the reward of the Philippians is great, the fruit of their labor. See, Paul made sure that the Philippians understood that, that he was going to be okay with or without the gift. He's always teaching, and he wanted to make sure that God was getting the glory, that it was God who moved in them to give to him, to meet the need that he had. In thanksgiving to the people of Philippi, he proclaimed the importance of his sufficiency in Christ. No matter the ability of the church to help him, because there was a time where they were not able to help him, he had learned to be content. He understood where his help came from. This is why he made this statement, this famous verse in 13, says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't know very many people inside or outside the church that aren't familiar with that verse. It's pretty popular. But it seems that we perhaps misuse that verse quite often. 
we should keep it in context. So, for example, is the Apostle Paul saying that I can fly like a bird if I trust Jesus enough? Yes or no? No. Okay, thank you. We're on the same page. I would love that. No, it's a fine verse to put on the back of your t-shirts. But it is not a wish upon a genie in a bottle kind of statement. That's not what this means. Paul is making it clear that no matter the situation, by Christ's strength, he is able to endure, to stay on mission, to help proclaim the gospel of Christ, to stay in the fight, to build to last, and give God the glory in all that is happening. He has learned to be content with much or with little. See, it's also an important statement when he says he's been learned to be content with abundance. See, too often in, in our flesh, it appears that we immediately think about, okay, I need to learn to be content without something. That's a very true statement. We should be content with little. But it's just as important and just as difficult, actually, to be content when there's plenty. Because, see, when we have an abundance, our pride can sneak in and we can begin to think that we are successful because of our own strength. But Paul's declaration makes that clear that that's not true. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content because of his power within me. Paul's declaration is one of complete dependence. Complete dependence, not just stoic living. See, many times we can be stoic. A stoic is a person who can endure pain or hardship without showing their feelings or complaining. It's also a member of the ancient philosophical school of Stoicism. So Paul's declaration is one of complete dependence, not Stoicism. Pastor Wayne was discussing the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. I think I said that right, I don't know. With a professor friend, and uh, his friend's name is Louis Marcos, and Mr. Marcos made this comment on contentment and dependence that I want to share. He, says, he said, the Stoics knew well how to adapt themselves to all situations whether good or bad, but they lack the further revelation of a loving and involved God who knows what we need, cares about what we need, and supplies what we need. That secret of which Paul speaks was known to the Stoics, but only in part. Both the Stoic and the Christian look inward. However, while the former finds only an impersonal inner light to guide him, the latter finds the Holy Spirit of God indwelling him. Stoicism may afford us some rest and peace in the present darkness of our world, but it lacks the power or wisdom to point us to a final rest that transcends worldly troubles and that will fulfill the true and proper desires placed in us by our Creator. See, remember that that, that peace that God gives surpasses all comprehension. And it is God who gives it. My own flesh cannot muster up the strength to get through these times of little or much. The Lord Jesus is the one who strengthens us as we take our cares to him. He holds us up with his sufficiency. Warren Wiersbe had this comment on contentment. He says, contentment comes from adequate resources. Our resources are the, prov the providence of God, the power of God, and the promises of God. These resources made Paul sufficient for every demand of life, and they can make us sufficient See, if we're going to be happy in the pursuit of life, if we're going to be content 
and joyful, then we must be generous and we must learn contentment. We must learn what it means to be okay whether we have little or have much. And we also must be mindful of God's provision and God's plan. Philippians 4, 19-20 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. As we said, the Philippians have been greatly generous in the work of the gospel and to the Apostle Paul. Paul made it clear that he was more impacted by their love and care for him and their care for the expanse of the gospel and that he was okay without their financial support. But because they gave sacrificial, he, re- sacrificial, he reminds them that it is God who supplies all for their needs. No matter what, God will supply and take care of them. And Paul was confident that he, the Lord was going to take care of the, the Philippian church. And we've talked about how the Lord promises to provide and that we should not wor- worry, but we should rest in his provision. And I'm sure that you, like myself, have seen many times when the Lord has done that, how he provides in ways that we cannot imagine. But what astounds me as I continue to look at this verse, though, is is how the Lord supplies for needs. And that phrase, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, makes me stand in awe. Because God just doesn't give me what I need. He supplies out of his riches and for his glory. And I was processing this, and over years I've processed this passage a number of times, and this picture, this scenario in my life has always um, been on my mind. And I want to read uh, a part of a letter my granny wrote to me when I was turning 16. And I hope that it can help us somewhat grasp how the Lord gives. She says, we want you to know that we are delighted to be a part of your life And we thank God that he is allowing us to give you your first car. It has been a sacrifice for us. I want you to know that. But much joy also comes from giving. We had thought the trip to Europe this year would be your birthday, but God made the provision for us. Philippians 4, 19, she quotes, But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And then she put, Evidently, it's a need. Now, she went on to tell me my responsibility of having this car as a 16-year-old young man, encouraged and challenged me to submit to my mom and dad in all that was happening in life, and then she signed it, we love you, Papa and Granny. Now, honestly, it's still somewhat, many years later, to to think that a 67 Mustang for a 16-year-old boy was a need. I'm very grateful. But that's how my granny saw it. That's how she saw it because she had learned to trust the Lord for all of her needs in the midst of fighting through not having much and working diligently to trust and seeing the Lord provide in abundance. And she understood that all good gifts come down from the Father of Light's And they were able to be generous because they gave according to his riches, not man's. 
See, the Lord provides out of his riches. He is the one who controls the wind and the waves and who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We can be generous and content because he's God. Because he's God. Because he's a loving God. He has a sovereign plan. He has a way to provide that is beyond our imagination. And he lavishes his grace upon us. He lavishes his grace upon us. Tracy Bush from her pulpit team was reading through a book by Kenneth Geyer entitled Life as We Would Want It, Life as We Are Given It. And she, she shared a passage of the book that fits with what we're talking about and God and his riches in lavishing us. She says this uh, to set up the passage. She said the following passage is in the context of, of a discussion contrasting the lives of Solomon and David. Geyer compares the landscape of Solomon's life to the smooth, unpredictable terrain of eastern Colorado, and David's life is compared to the mountainous upheaval of western Colorado. Maybe an unusual comparison, she says, but it fits the theme of the book. So, here's a section. Geyer says this. He says, David's relationship with Bathsheba, on the other hand, was all his doing. He initiated the sexual encounter, had her husband Uriah murdered, and tried to cover it all up with lies and deception. The upheaval evil nearly destroyed him. At best, it could have cost him his job. At worst, his life. Yet God in his mercy spared him both consequences. He did, however, exact other consequences, painful consequences he would have to live with the rest of his life. Of all the upheavals in David's life, this was Pike's Peak. This was the one failure that would dominate the landscape of his life. It would be named. It would be seen by everyone and remembered by everyone forever. If God truly does make everything beautiful in its time, what possible beauty could he bring from this? It took a thousand years, but the beauty finally came. It is recorded in the first chapter of Matthew. We can see it by starting at the first verse, then skipping down to the sixth. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, from verse one. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah in verse six. Through the union of David and Bathsheba came Solomon, and through Solomon came the Savior of the world. For all the consequences of David's sin that we could name, could any of us have ever named that one? In our wildest imagination, who of us could have foreseen such beauty coming from such ugliness? The word for it is grace. It is who God is. It is what he does. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Everything. He may take a lifetime to do it. He may take a lineage of lifetimes to do it. But in its time, he makes everything beautiful. End quote. See, Ephesians 1, 7, 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. This is what the Lord does. He lavishes us with his grace. According to his riches, he offers us eternal life, allowing us to be joyful always. 
We can be happy. We can be content because of his great grace, because his provision and his plan is perfect. If you would, I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We have another short section to cover to finish up this text in just a moment, but right now I want you to stop and I want you to reflect on God's provision and his plan. I want you to reflect on God and his great love that, that made a way to bridge the chasm between our rebellion and his holiness because he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. And this Jesus faithfully, obediently, humbly went to the cross to die and then he defeated death because he rose again three days later in order that all who believe in him should have eternal life. And I want to challenge you, if you are listening right now and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, you don't know what this happy, content life looks like, what it means to actually be joyful, I challenge you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. And that life will allow you to be happy and joyful and content. For those of you brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to take a moment to thank the Lord for his provision, for his plan that is always perfect and always complete. No matter the situation, take a breath at the moment and recognize that you can, you can be content as well and you can be generous because of the abundance of his grace and his riches. Know that you can be sufficient and proclaim and trust him in that sufficiency. Take one moment and pray. Father, we thank you for lavishing your grace upon us. Thank you for your perfect plan, which includes not just taking care of my practical needs. No, you began with taking care of my spiritual need. And you offered me life. Help me to be mindful of your provision and your plan so that I can live joyfully, generously, and content, and that I can learn to bless others. All those people said, amen. As we come to the end of the letter to the Philippians, Paul's greeting to the church at the end shows us that we are to be a blessing to others. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with you, with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The believers with Paul wanted the Philippian church to know that they were thinking of them and cared for them, so they sent their greetings along with Paul. You and I, as those redeemed by God's grace, we have the opportunity to bless one another. We can greet one another in love and peace with generosity, with grace. We have the opportunity to live content lives so that no matter what, we can actually be a blessing for those who are in trouble at the moment. So a question, when you make your plans to attend church on Sunday mornings, are you looking for ways to bless your brothers and sisters? Or are you simply coming to get something out of it?